Hey, everybody. So as you just heard, my name is John Popola. I'm the CEO and Executive Creative Director of Emergent Order Foundation. And one of the things we do is produce a podcast and a YouTube series called Dad Saves America. So what, what is that? Well, it's a show dedicated to celebrating the heroic role of fathers in our lives and trying to use inspirational and motivational storytelling to do that. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with you all. Uh, we have some really great people to come on board. So I want to first introduce Emma Westenberg. She is the director of You Sing Loud, I Sing Louder, which premiered here at South by Southwest. Why do I say it? Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I was very fortunate and, and had to see the film on Saturday night. And I'm really glad I did. And also, I want to introduce someone I can really call a friend, Troy Kotzer. He is the Oscar-winning actor who played Frank Rossi on the movie Coda. And Troy's interpreter, Justin, who's going to help us have this conversation. Uh, before we get started, uh, you know, Troy just presented at the Oscars. And so we figured, why not share a little Oscars-like video that I think will set the stage and the tone for our conversation. So, Let's go ahead and roll the clip. When your kid was born, were you nervous? Did you feel qualified? Like you had any idea how to successfully operate that thing? I literally pieced it together as I went along. I thought about what my dad did. It's your job to be our father. No, it's not a job. It's a joy being your father. You know, a lot of times, think about what is it that makes somebody a good parent. You know, it has to do with constancy. It has to do with, with, with patience. It has to do with listening to them. It has to do with pretending to listen to them when you can't even listen anymore. It has to do with love. Thanks, Daddy. Did you hear that? He's got my first daddy. Spent time with your family? Man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Can I just keep pretending I'm your son? my son. My little girl. Girl would be nice. Less of a chance she'd turn out exactly like me. What'd be so awful about that? Don't be scared about me being a dad because I will not fail at that. I can't. I love this kid too much. Talk to me. What is so hard to answer about what sculpture are you making? It's abstract. Okay. Okay, that's good. See, that's I didn't I didn't I didn't know that I didn't know you were even interested in abstract art. I'm not. They make us stupid. Not your little boy anymore, Dad. I've grown up. I've got my own life now. I know that. I just wanted to be part of it. Go. Come on and give your old man a hug. I. Trey, you may think I'm being hard on you right now, but I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm trying to teach you how to be responsible. Just trying to be the best dad I can be. Well, you are. I love you, Dad. I love you, too. Have I ever failed you? I am not ready to be without you. You'll stay with me. Until the end. You see... He lives in you. My son. My dad. 
Yes, that gets me started, because now this is going <laughs> on. Um, I want to first, I want to thank South by Southwest for offering tickets for our kids from the Texas School for the Deaf here. It's a, it's a pleasure to share Troy with the deaf community here in Austin. We have a great deaf community in Texas and in Austin. And I also want to thank um, Chris Binning, who provided the clips for this, uh, this sequence on short notice so that I could cry every time I watch it. <laughs> um, so I think first, for, for those in the audience who aren't, who aren't deaf, Troy, can you just explain what is a coda? Well, CODA is an acronym standing for Child of a Deaf Adult. And specifically, children who grow up with deaf culture, they, of course, are exposed to sign language at an early age. And a CODA is a great example of bridging two worlds and two cultures. And so CODAs are able to code switch between the deaf community and the hearing communities. And they go through two worlds uh, their entire life. That's a part of their experience. And so in our film CODA, we show those two communities finally being bridged, and it's important to collaborate and bridge those communities. And so that's why we shared the story of CODA. And so it was great to have that as a, so we had so many team members and cast members who were CODAs, and especially a CODA who loves music, right, in our film. And so she had this goal of studying singing at Berkeley School of Music. And so of course, we as a deaf family depended on our CODA daughter for so many things because folks in the outside world don't know sign language and so many deaf people coming in from small communities in rural areas don't have access to communication. So that's basically the story and that's what a CODA is. Troy, one of the things you know, at the heart of the story um, is this conflict between you and, and your daughter. And it's a conflict on a couple levels. Do you want to expand on like what was the central tension there what what created that challenge between you and your daughter in the movie well it's interesting because of course a father has to support his family and bring money home and it's quite interesting because really as a deaf parent, this deaf parent didn't ever bother to hear about music, but it just so happened that his daughter loves music. And have, so there's a conflict there of the father trying to enter his daughter's world and understand it. And at that moment, when you see the father and daughter sitting on the back of that flatbed pickup truck, there's just a few moments to make a connection. And for the rest of the film, they're often on their separate journeys. And so that was their opportunity to finally connect. And it's really hard to let go as a parent. That's the second conflict. And so the first conflict is communication. The second conflict is letting go because my character needed his daughter to help run his family business on the fishing boat. So without their access to communication in the outside world, that was part of the challenge. You know, So we needed to find a different way to run our business. And so we end up running our own co-op, our own fishing co-op, which is a decision, a huge decision and choice that that family makes. And you see what those parents go through. And then you're, you have a mirror because you're, you have a daughter yourself who is a coda. And she even looks yes, a little like one. the actress in the movie. So yes, almost exactly, exactly right. So she reminded me so much of my daughter. Amelia Jones reminded me of my daughter, Kira. And so specifically, it's interesting. So my daughter who is a CODA, said, hey, it's really cool that the deaf community is collaborating with hearing people, but it's really cool that the hearing community is collaborating with CODAs too. And I was like, I didn't 
really think of that. It, we really, the outside world increased their awareness of CODAs, and many folks aren't aware of what CODAs are, and CODAs have to explain their identities their entire lives. So it's like, okay, once you accept my deaf father, then I can explain who I am, and they have to think twice, because yeah. often we, as deaf parents, have to connect with our hearing CODAs' friends' parents. And so we have to think about what's best for our child. And my daughter, you know, she was pretty shy at first, and then seeing the movie Coda, you know, it was like how the character was a bit shy too in the film, and it takes time for them to open up and accept their own identities. And after winning an Oscar, I saw that my daughter was a bit more open about her Coda identity, and in my wife's ASL class, she had a lot of lazy students, and then after she, the, her students found out her father was an Oscar award winner, they started to become much more serious <laughs> in studying and much more respectful of my wife in the classroom. So that made a good, good. So. And of course, Justin here is also a CODA, so we've got a great CODA representation here on the stage. Um, Emma, so I saw your movie uh, on Saturday, and it was, just, it was just beautiful, and at the center of it is this relationship between a father and a daughter, much like, much like CODA, but in a very different story, in a different context. Um, could you, for, since you know, we've now had two screenings, this was the premiere, could you sort of summarize the movie so people can kind of understand? Yeah. Hopefully they'll get to see very soon. It, um, it's a movie about a father and a daughter that reconnect um, on a road trip and they haven't seen each other for a while and during the road trip you kind of find out why they haven't seen each other for a while and you see them come back together, reunite in a way that they haven't before and she's 20 and he's 47 so it's also about uh, for her you know, becoming an adult and accepting your parents for who they are so changing from the child idea that you have about them to the, the person that they are. They have um, two different goals in a way, or different paths they have to cross and, 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 um, and obstacles they have to overcome internally on this trip. Can you, can you unpack that for us a little bit? Because it is, they're together and yet they are on two parallel journeys. Yeah, she is just trying to get away and to hide and not... Her father has been absent for most of her life and suddenly he reappears and she has, yeah, doesn't want to let him back in because she doesn't trust him. And he's just really trying to make up for lost time and make up for mistakes that he's made. Um, and while she is, really needs to yeah, heal herself more than anything, yeah. Um. So at the heart of both of these movies is a father-daughter relationship. Yeah. And um, I guess, Troy, you know, what makes this relationship so special? What, you know, each, each is different, right? Father-son, father-daughter. What makes the father-daughter relationship unique? Well, when my wife was pregnant, I was thinking about having a son. And I was thinking, hey, sports are my thing. I'd love to teach my son football or basketball or golf. And then I had a daughter. <laughs> and she taught me about female things like makeup and dressing up. And I have to learn about all those things I knew nothing about. And that was part of her life and her culture. I saw a new perspective, and I had a better understanding and connection with my wife. I go shopping with my daughter. I don't know about bra sizes or anything like that. And I was kind of uncomfortable asking those questions, you know. But as she grew, 
I really could see why they have that expression, daddy's girl. We really do have that special bond. With a son, it's like, yeah, I understand. I'm a man. We're the same. Yeah, you're going to get in trouble. But with my daughter, I feel like I really cherish her, that she's so sweet and I need to protect her. So it's really interesting. I feel a really strong connection with my daughter. And the same question, you know, what, how do you understand this relationship? I mean, you, you have a father and um, your, your movie is about this so much. How do you think about what's special about the father-daughter? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, I think when I read the script for the first time, I, I really related to it because my father is like the, mo the most forming person in my life. Um, and I always really looked up to be more like him than my mom because he, you know he was the person that was working and ambitious and had his own own uh, life and I wanted that you know um, so I think it's interesting because it's the reverse of what you're saying that maybe because it is different you kind of uh, yeah there's more aspiration or something yeah what uh what in did, the relationship what did your dad do what does your dad do he's a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> so did you bring any of that? Did he? Did you get sort of soaked in a psychological conversations growing up? And did you, do you bring that to your filmmaking? There's a there's a rich inner world in the characters. In the yeah, yeah. No, he's definitely very observant. Um, um, and and I I do think that I have that from him. I love watching people. I think that's why I became a director. Is because I just yeah. Human interactions and role patterns and behaviors just endlessly interesting to me. <laughs> well, it's in a way, it's like the actor's fundamental question to the director, what's my motivation, is like yeah. the ultimate psychological question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I doing this in this scene right now? Yeah. Um, so, okay, so I, I want to touch on something else in the movie for, uh, that is powerful, and you alluded to it, which is the movie deals with addiction. And one of the things, uh, and you heard this, you know, we, we all got together last night and you heard this, that I think your movie captures that moment of dealing with addiction with a loved one and trying to overcome it in a way that's really raw and authentic. Um, how, did you, how did you grapple with that? How did you bring that realism to life as a director? And, you know, how were you thinking about what this particular challenge means, you know, so that it, is authentic and so that it feels real for the viewer. Yeah, I think, you know, I grew up in a family with a lot of uh, addiction issues and um, I've, in developing the movie and developing the script, I was reading a lot about addiction and trying to understand it. And um, I think what I try to do in the movie is that it's not about the substance, the addiction, it's about uh, um, this, I. Uh, fear of loss or absence and then that gets uh, substituted with um, a, abuse of some kind be it uh, substance or behavior um, and I and that was what I tried to um, weave together in the movie that it's she responds by subduing herself every time she feels that he's he's uh, um, leaving her again, you know, that it's more yeah. this uh, sense of absence or loss that, that she's trying to fill with other things. And I think that that's why in the end, you know, we, sh we show that their connection and them, him being there for her um, can heal, be healing, can heal these kind of things. 
I, it's hard to do it by yourself, I think, you know, getting over addiction. That's why it's so hard when people say, like, you know, it's a choice that you make for yourself. It is not like that. You, some people just, if, yeah, you just get further and further isolated and you need people to yeah, help you out. Yeah. It's one of the beautiful things about the movie that we're actually along for a ride that is um, a healing, redemptive journey. It's yeah. not... Um, it's a very positive film, I think. Yeah. Um, one, one other question. You, you know, so you, this is your second feature film? Yes, I made one uh, before. And, and you've produced, you've directed beautiful, very like art-inspired music videos and commercials. And one of the things um, when I saw that before coming into the movie was like, I hope this is going to be a natural, a naturalistic film. <laughs> uh, because sometimes, you know, music video and commercial directors, they can be more style than substance, and that was not the case. In fact, um, how did you balance like your, your flair that you bring to music videos with what really is a very naturalistic movie? The movie feels very grounded. Um, it's, it's very, it lives in the environment, which is this New Mexico drive. Um, how much of it was a function of budget? Was there a bunch of crazy stuff you didn't get to do? Um, no. Or, you know, tell me about the style. No, it really, I mean, also my music videos and other work, it really is all about, for me, character, you know? And in the music videos, it's obviously an artist, so they're musical and they have, you know, a big personality that they want to show. So it is in that way, the visual serves the character as well. But in this movie, because it is so much about this intimate relationship, I never wanted the visuals to take away from that and always they serve to be um, as a platform for the characters and not so much uh, yeah, to, to take away from it. Yeah, you really so, feel it. Yeah, but we, but we talked a lot with the production designer, with the DP as well, about uh, creating this world which has the wonderment of the absurdity of reality, where, you know, reality is, can be so wonderfully weird and, and and your movie has some wonderfully weird things in it. yeah and 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 i love that about life and 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 i think that the the surprise and the wonder also is something that can get you out of dark dark moments and that is something that i really wanted to fill this world with you know that that all these kind of uh alive and interesting people and places and yeah uh, Troy, same question. So your performance in CODA is very realistic, and um, it's so accessible to every viewer. And it's part of what, it's really the anchor of the movie for me. Um, how do you do that? How do you approach embodying a character in a way that feels real? How much of it is, is you being you? How much of it is work and preparation? So that, uh, you know, because in, that, in the film, you have to do a very physical job, and you have to be authentic in that in that role. Um, what, yeah, what did you do? How did you make it happen? Well, when I found out that I got the role of playing the father, I met our director on Zoom or FaceTime, and we were discussing my appearance. And she said, don't shave or cut your hair, Troy, for five months before <laughs> the shoot. And so that affected my character. I'd look in the mirror and see myself changing. And my beard, I felt like more of a redneck. And my hair began to grow long, as well as my beard. And she was sending me a few videos that showed real fishermen out on the fishing boat and how they pulled in the nets and pulled in all these fish. So I began to study those videos. And before the first day of the shoot, we flew about two weeks early 
to rehearse. And so we all got out onto a fishing boat. We got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and we learned how to fish. And so how to sort the fish, how to weigh them. There was monkfish. There was those fish with real sharp teeth with the light bulb thing coming over their head. And I remember one time I cut my finger, and it really affected me, and the smell and how slimy they were. When you pick up a squid, it's so hard to hold, and it's just popping out of your hand. And these live lobsters, and I'm picking them up, and they're with their claws, and I'm setting them down very carefully. And then I became very skilled at that and sorting the fish, and that really influenced my character, as well as sign language on the ship. So we had to invent these signs that don't really exist in ASL regarding these fishing tools. And so that affected our sign. We're like, OK, where's, where's the hook? You know, the wooden hook that has a nail on the end with a spike for sorting the fish. We made that sign up, and we documented these signs. And we really influenced our characters. Hey, where's that tool? OK, here, let's grab it. Boom, boom, let's get these fish. Let's sort them. And I really got used to it out on the fishing boat for two weeks. And of course, I stunk. When I got home, I'd go to the bar afterwards, and I'd hang out with real fishermen. And I saw their behavior, how they walked, how they talked. You know, they passed out beers, they started drinking pretty early in the afternoon, they'd get into bar fights, and all of that stuck to me and influenced my character, Frank Rossi. So I made it through, and so after we finished the shoot, it almost took me about six months to let go of my character. It was really hard for me. And growing up, I wasn't a fisherman. I don't even eat seafood myself. I never have. <laughs> but for my character, I had to dive right into that role, and I guess I'm a good liar. <laughs> I, I'm a good actor. I fooled you, right? <laughs> You know, one of the things as we've gotten to know each other is, and it's, it, it's one of the beautiful things about CODA, is for those of us that have not experienced deaf culture and the language, um, you see it here. All I can think of is you have so much more beautiful a language than I do. <laughs> it's so rich with expression, not just audibly, but visually. Uh, and I feel like that's a big part of what the movie shares with the world, is a, a, a chance to experience ASL as a language, like the languages that exist out there. So I think f in some ways I, I didn't think about that before, that ASL is a language, mm -hmm. and that, um, and that it, it brings with it the culture of language, like French or Italian or Chinese. Um, so it's something it, that, that completely changed the way I think about your world. When I read the script initially, I was thrilled. I saw all this dirty language in ASL, and I said, hey, I was thrilled. This is our opportunity to show what dirty sign language looks like on stage and that vulgarity. Because as deaf people, we've already seen all your hearing movies and all your swear words, and we read them with the captions and all the insults. But where was our opportunity to share that part of our language and our culture? So finally, it was about time to really unveil our rich culture. It was really fun. And sometimes we would play around with the English script, and sometimes the, deaf, the sign language can be even more vulgar and even more <laughs> over the top than the, what was written in English. So it was fun mm -hmm. to play around with an improv. I'm thinking about one that involved this. <laughs> Again? It was like a itchy crotch, basically, <laughs> in the movie. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it was a doctor's office scene. Um, so I said it felt like there was barnacles growing on my balls. <laughs> Right, you guys remember that? Yep, yep, yep. Very different in ASL than spoken. Spoken. That's right. But you can use your imagination because sign language is so visual. You can see it, and and then you really imagine it. So, um, in both the movies, but I think also in our culture, um, 
you know, our, our panel's called Daddy Issues, and that has a particular meaning to it, that you, your movie embodies this very much so. That, you, yeah. uh, you know, the, 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 the lead has Daddy Issues. It's about overcoming them. Um, but why do you think this, this role and, and, and Daddy Issues and the relationship with uh, fathers and their, and their kids um, looms so large in our storytelling? Emma? I guess because just culturally fathers are like the leader of the family. So it's just like the person that you look up to. Of course, you also look up to your mother. But yeah, of course. Yeah, it is. I think that that then translates to storytelling, that they are this kind of all-knowing beacon, you know? It's like where they're going, that's where we're going. And I think that that's why it's so yeah impressive as a kid, child. Yeah. Troy, how about you? Why do you think dad looms large in stories. When I was a child, I felt like my father was the protector of my family. My father was a policeman, and and it really felt like he was protecting the family, as well as taking us out camping, fishing, water skiing, golfing, and so on. And it really, every time I would go to my father's presentations, he was very involved with the city of Mesa, Arizona, and the, he knew the mayor, and he was an icon, and he eventually became the police chief of Mesa, and he was very well respected. And then he was in a car accident. Uh, he had to live in a wheelchair and was paralyzed from the neck down, but that didn't stop him. He persisted. He kept going. And so looking at myself as being deaf, I was like, being deaf is nothing. So what? You know, I can still play golf. I can drive. I can go water skiing. But my father couldn't anymore, and so, but he kept persisting, and... He was so strong, and that really inspired me, and that's why my dad was my hero, and I felt like de being deaf isn't a big deal. I don't care what people think about me because I'm deaf. I just keep going in my life and moving forward. So my father really inspired me, and I really looked up to him, and I witnessed everything that happened to him from the beginning to the end, from him being strong physically, from him deteriorating, and he didn't let that stop him. You know, it, it reminds me of a role that I think uh, dads play in a particular way, and it's not, this is not to take away from, from mothers, but that I think dads play this role of sort of pushing us to take more risks. We're, we're, we're more inclined, on average, to let our kids climb to that higher branch on the tree and, um, and to maybe take us out and sneak out of the house to do something that's a little naughty. And both of you have done things that are really risk, risky fields to, to act, to direct, to go into this highly competitive environment where you really put your heart out there to get stomped on by a lot of people the whole time. Um, you know, do you feel like your dad played a, a big role in enabling you to do that? I'll start with you, Troy. My father encouraged me, but he also wanted to encourage me to have a side job to make sure I could pay the bills, <laughs> you know. And as I moved forward, I realized my dad was right. I needed to support myself and my family, and he was a bit worried. It was really rare to have opportunities for deaf actors in film or TV because when I got a bit older and wiser, when I was young, I was like in fantasy land, and I was frustrated myself. And my dad let me fall and get back up, and that taught me to grow. And my dad, he never missed any theater production I had. He would drive hours and hours to see me perform on stage as a theater actor. And so if my father was still alive, I'm sure he'd be so proud to see me with an Oscar today. And I wish he could. He passed away, but I know his spirit is still around, and I know that. 
And I, I was so blessed to have my father be a part of my life. Emma, how about you? Do you feel like your dad, you, you already said you looked up to him as a, yeah. as a provider, as someone who had a career. Did he play a role in you having an appetite for risk? Um, I think so, yeah. He, he definitely, he was like, there's going to be two things that you spend most of your time with in life. One is work and one is your partner. So it's good if you choose both of them, uh, if being like not, uh, that you want to spend time there and that it feels natural, that you don't have to feel like you are struggling while you are doing it. So um, I think that in that way, because I, I didn't know what I wanted to be and I yeah. just kind of figured it out along the way in what feels natural. So I think that that was definitely... Yeah, he, he, and my mom was like, oh, you're going to art school? Well, you can always go back to school <laughs> if it doesn't work out. We'll keep that spare bedroom yeah, yeah, ready yeah. for you. Yeah, and I think, you know, it is also the two of them. It's nice to have the two perspectives because it is now it's changing a lot, you know, for di different people to take the stage. But, it, you know, for her generation, it also maybe wasn't a great she, had le she would have had less opportunities than I have now as a woman 100%. A filmmaker, you know. So I also really understand her perspective. And I, my dad and I sometimes will get into arguments because he's like, sexism, that's not a thing. And I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> maybe not from your perspective. <laughs> so that's, yeah. It's, uh, I think he also, you know, fathers are able to take more risks because they're not uh, women. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely um, one of the things that I've learned from my, my wife, frankly, is I don't have to worry when I go out into a parking lot. I just don't think about it. And she mm. does. Like, there's something so basic as how, how do I think about my own safety is completely, uh, it's, it's a perspective that I don't have as a man that my, oh. my wife and my, my, my mother and women have. You, and that in and of itself is a radical a radical foundation on which you try to build your understanding of yourself. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I, please, Troy. So when I was a child, I didn't realize that my father put me in risky situations. Like we would go hunting, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I'd have a shotgun. And I had two brothers. And so I'd be carrying a shotgun. Of course, you see the bird and you try and shoot the bird, right? And looking back, I was like, wow, my dad let me have a shotgun and he trusted me with this dangerous weapon? That's pretty risky. And looking back on that, I'm thinking about what he did, but it was amazing that he let me. Because being deaf, imagine back in the 1970s just putting a gun in a deaf boy's hands. Okay, this is safe, go ahead. And so, but I was fine, but looking back, I was like, you know, it's, that's one example of the risks that my father put me into to get out of my comfort zone. You know, that just reminds me of something I think so powerful is, and I have a 17-year-old, like, like you, Troy. So um, when we don't trust our kids to do a thing, we are basically saying we don't believe they can do it, even if we don't say that explicitly. So that is really beautiful that your dad was telling you, you can do this. You can do something difficult. You can do something dangerous. And water skiing, too. Think about that. I mean, just being on the back of a speedboat, and I was okay. But I'm glad my dad made the effort to put me in those risky situations. And hey, I'm still in one piece, knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to change gears a little bit. 
we have these, I think this is even more true in television than in film. We have these characters, um, Al Bundy, uh, you know, Homer Simpson, Phil, Phil Dumphy, the sort of like self-deprecating, goofy, idiot dad. And they're funny and they make for great comedy. Um, do you think they've maybe in some ways played a negative role in the way we think about fathers and fatherhood? Or do you think it's just fun and it's fine? What do you think? Emma. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I love The Simpsons. <laughs> okay. um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'll give you time to think. I think that a father would never have a son-in-law because of his certain behavior, right? So if my daughter wanted to get married, maybe she, she would, I can what do you mean? Right, so if you see your father to have that type of behavior, then you'll never have a daughter-in-law. <laughs> because I can't get married, I can't date because I have a weird dad, right? So you kind of, st you can't bring your partner home because your dad is so embarrassing, right? And so, um, if you have embarrassing behavior, you might be affecting your kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, did you have anything you wanted to? No, I mean, I do think I do think that you know, uh, films, books, movies, or shows are very—they do have an effect, and they do um, change your perspective sometimes, behavior on things. Uh, but I also really think that comedy and characters that are less than perfect are really important because that makes it relatable and makes you be also maybe feel better in how you navigate your own life. So I don't think that, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it sort of speaks, my next question really kind of speaks to that, which is in the U.S. in particular, um, we have, we have this, this thing that doesn't get, it's getting more conversations around it than it used to, which is one in four American children are being raised in a home without a father, a father, a father figure, biological step, or adoptive. And so as filmmakers, we face this interesting challenge in the United States in particular, which is at least a quarter of our audience hasn't, has had a, a relate in the absence of that relationship, that important relationship. And they're looking to us and our stories, and in, in, I think even more so for inspiration or maybe even for gaps to be filled. So how do you think about our responsibility as storytellers? And I'm putting a lot of weight on us here, right? But like, to take it seriously for a moment, how do you, how do you think about that? The, the responsibility, the opportunity from a, you know, a social justice perspective, let's say, yeah. uh, to navigate portraying the father figure in a way that is either cautionary or inspirational. And I think with your film, Yours does both. He's both a cautionary character and an inspirational character because he's there and he's come back and he's worked through things. So how do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, again, like I definitely think that movies, I, I, you know, you think it's, it takes a lot of work to make something yeah. and it takes a lot of effort from a lot of different people and it costs a lot of money and I think in making anything, I do think about like, what does this put in the world? Like, is it uh, something that people can take solace out of or laugh about or that it adds something, I think, uh, 
positive or aspirational or hopeful or celebratory. Um, and in that case, in, in, this, in my movie, I really thought it was important to show, you know, that the father maybe has made some mistakes, but that that is okay and you can still come to love each other and still come to find healing with each other. Um, so I definitely, yeah, and then what that then does, hopefully it will touch some people and people can then think like, okay, maybe I can reconnect with my parent or with my, um, uh, with my child because I do believe that, you know, some people are scared to make those decisions and maybe a movie can help. I hope. I definitely, I know your movie will touch a lot of people in mm -hmm. that way. And, and Troy, same question for you. I mean, your, your movie is such an inspirational portrayal of a family and a father who really loves his daughter. How do you think about the responsibility and the opportunity as a storyteller to bring those kind of stories to life? When I was growing up, I saw all these hearing stories. Uh, well, I heard stories about language deprivation for deaf children. And so hearing parents were making decisions based on fear uh, regarding their deaf children and their education. There was so much controversy regarding that. And so when our film came out, I'm seeing perspectives begin to change and awareness of deaf children and CODA children beginning to increase as well. And so I think our film was very important and it connected them with this message that it was a better way than preaching, right? by just showing them and letting hearing people become flies on the wall and, and see our, into our deaf culture and show them how much language and communication are important. And that's what we're often missing. And so for those families that don't have a father, and especially when communication is gone, what's important is love. So your father's a symbol of not giving up and not letting anything stop you. And no matter what type of communication you use, and you always have to find a way to communicate. You have to find a way to love, and language is the way to show your love. And so it's really important to have these families, you know, when their fathers pass away, how can they carry on that tradition? How can, what type of memories will keep you alive after your father is gone? And when my father is gone, what's so nice is to have those memories. It's like having a library of memories on your shelf, and you can always pull that book or that VHS tape out and really appreciate those memories and see what everyone went through. Nobody's perfect. None of these fathers are perfect, you know? Yeah. But love never stops, and you can always find a way to heal and communicate. Like in your story, like you mentioned, your father had to fight with his own demons and come back and show his daughter that love. And so it didn't matter what situation they were in or how many years it took. That's a really touching message. All right, last question. Um, favorite dad in the movies, Emma? Oh, let me think about that one. I mean, I love your, you as that in the movie. Several. <laughs> yeah. I have several. First of all, Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Darth Vader in Star Wars. Yep. Secondly, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jimmy Stewart. That was beautiful, a beautiful story about family and fatherhood. And I liked Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with Sean Connery portraying Indiana Jones' father. Junior. 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 Right, Junior, yep. <laughs> and so you see that struggle between father and son, but they have to support and save each other. And one last one, I liked Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, I love Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> and, you know, he's trying to be as close to his kids as possible by putting on this, this costume, and it's really touching. Yeah. All right, Emma. You had, you, had, you had some time to think. Oh, yeah, I really, in the beginners, 
the beginners. Yeah, it's also uh, with you and McGregor. Oh yes, yes. And uh, why? I think because it is so much about like being the the mirror that your parent is of you, and like where you are different from them. Uh, and trying to figure out that tension, I think, is really interesting and beautiful in that movie. I, uh, I can't help but say The Godfather for me. Uh -huh. <laughs> interesting. I, <laughs> <laughs> probably, Italian. I'm Italian. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I got brainwashed, you know. It's, it's, it's part of the upbringing. It's like you're going to watch The Godfather. You're, I know you're nine. It's going to be fine. Uh. <laughs> Justin, how about you? What's my favorite? Oh, you put me on the spot. Mm. Come back to me at the end. <laughs> this is the end, my friend. My favorite, this is the end. Oh, man. Uh, no idea. <laughs> I, I had a shitty dad. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. Therapy. You can borrow Homer Simpson. How's that? Borrow Homer Simpson. Thank you. <laughs> All right, before we go to questions, um, I'm really excited to share for the first time a brief clip from a film that uh, my team and I at Emergent Order Foundation and Dad Saves America are producing about Troy's relationship with his father. You've heard a lot about that on the stage. And um, this is a, just a little, a little taste of this film that will be coming out later this year. So before we go to questions, I want to play the clip.
right, so we have an opportunity to take questions, um, and specifically for my awesome pa panelists to take questions from any of you. I know we've got this app that allows you to submit them, so, but you can also, I invite you also to come up to the uh, microphone here uh, and ask any questions you'd like. Here we go. Hi, my name is Vanny. Um, I work in disability advocacy in film and TV. Um, and Troy, I've been following your work since The Mandalorian and had the honor of watching CODA at Sundance. So it's been really wonderful to see how far you've come. What I've really appreciated about this panel was that it wasn't just a panel about deafness. It was a panel about daddy issues, which is something that I think the hearing deaf and CODA community can relate to, which featured a panelist that just happened to be deaf. And so, Troy, in the years since you've won your Oscar, what changes have you seen in the way that Hollywood views deaf culture, creates opportunities for deaf creatives, and what changes would you still like to see? Hey, hi there. Thank you so much for watching our film, CODA, and for watching The Mandalorian. So yes, I have seen a lot of improvement in Hollywood. It's not that fast, but I've seen a lot of opportunities for more deaf roles for deaf children, or even deaf senior citizens in their 70s and 80s now are receiving some roles in TV series and film. And I've had a lot of meetings, and of course you need to educate these producers about deaf culture and deaf history so that we can find more rich stories to tell. A great example is that last weekend I was at the Oscars, and Everything Everywhere All at Once was the film regarding Asian culture, and we had four awards there, and they're showing different perspectives, different cultures, and different languages, and accepting them, and even giving them awards. And so I'm seeing Hollywood beginning to be open for more and more diversity, because everyone has their own stories to tell. And secondly, you said, what did it feel like after winning the Oscar, and what the past year was like? Last year, I felt so I was stressed out. <laughs> I was, it was stressful going through these panel discussions, these interviews, these photo shoots, and everyone had their eyes on me. I had such scrutiny on me, and they were seeing how I behaved, how I spoke. I had to do all these photos, and uh, those months of going through that intense scrutiny, I felt like that evaporated. That chip on my shoulder evaporated like dust off my back, and I could be a little more calm and really enjoy the next generation of nominees going through that pressure themselves <laughs> because I was already there. Now it's your turn. So it was fun for me to witness and also to present some awards to Best Supporting Actor and Actress. And when I opened the envelope, I knew who won before anyone else knew. That was really cool. Mm. Thank you. I, one thing that, uh, and this is just a tiny less, uh, moment, our team and our director, Sean Scavelin, is here for the film. One thing we learned and struggled with, and it was like going back to film school, was how do we optimize the experience of watching something that has ASL? Because the, the pacing of the language is different. And so trying to find a way, and I think CODA did this in a way that's seamless, um, to, to make it accessible and, and, and correct for the deaf viewer, but then also for the hearing viewer. And it, that is like an entirely different um, process to try to understand. So I think that's another, but it's both a hurdle and an exciting kind of creative opportunity. Sometimes when a shoot is finished, of course, when you go through the editing process, 
they'll cut certain signs off in the middle of sign dialogue because, of course, these editors don't know sign language. <laughs> so they cut out these dialogue, and it might be a real important message. So in Coda, we had a deaf ASL consultant behind the camera letting them know where the good takes were and so on. And they were involved in the editing process, too, as well as completely captioned uh, films and open caption that were burned in, which was phenomenal. So it's really important to have a deaf eye or someone from that culture or that community who's a native, native speaker, right? on set as well as in the editing process and in pre-production even because you can say, hey, how many interpreters do you need? How many deaf roles do you have then on set? You can have four interpreters. Sometimes we needed interpreters on the fishing boat and some on the land and out at sea. And so we worked as a team. And so the interpreters can communicate with these walkie-talkies and make sure that it goes as seamless mm -hmm. as possible. I mean, just one quick example before we get next question is you really can't use close-ups because you're cutting off the expression, unless it, unless it's, there's no speaking happening, which was in and of itself like, oh wait, we can't use this tool that we think is important for drama. That's right. It really depends specifically on the scene, right? There could just be an expression you need to catch, or if there's not an important word of dialogue. But of course, you need to capture the dialogue and the facial expression depending on the specific scene or the shot you're trying to get. That's why it's fun as a creative to go through this process. Yes. And you can plan it out and map it out before the shoot or storyboard it. And I noticed that I've been presenting so much or during a monologue, the camera can zoom in closely, right? And then I can bring my signs in closer. And so I can work with the camera as it moves and my signs can begin to move closer to my face. And so then they can work in the close up that way and we can work together. You can always find a way. All right. All right. Um, I have a son with, that has severe disabilities, so thank you, Troy, for uh, your film rang home to me, and I'm an advocate in that community. Uh, my question has to do with father. So those of us, um, I have a close relationship. My father passed away five years ago, and like you, Troy, I think about him all the time, go through a library of you know ideas, but I'm trying to find like a replacement physically an embodiment of could be a father to me and I'm just wondering maybe any of you what um, you've seen there if Hollywood with baby boomers getting older and most of our fathers passing away if there's films or just a move to people that are looking for father figures whether it's your same age or maybe an older generation how that's um, coming about I'd appreciate your thoughts thank you When I see any father figure in a film or television series, that is, it reminds me of my father, right? It, it reminds me of that feeling of when my father was still alive again, when I see a father figure in a film that reminds me of him. And secondly, so when you have home movies, right? I have all these VHS and, and eight millimeters at home where I can save, and so I can visit my father again by watching these home movies. And the best part is just keeping your father in your heart and carrying him with you wherever you go. And that's what I do. Did I answer your question? <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Tell I, your son hello. Yeah. I, 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 would, I would add that I think um, that's a really interesting question you've raised. We, we are, we're sort of facing something for the first time in, in a way human history, how old our society is becoming, right? We've never had so many old people. and. Um, Maybe one way to think about it is, you know, how can you further embrace your role as a father figure for others and see your dad in your own actions, mm -hmm. not just with your son, but maybe with 
others. If you're, I don't know if you're here in Austin, but we have the Big Brothers Big Sisters organization here, and I think there's a lot of opportunities for us as we get older to step into the role of mentor. And I think this is a really powerful thing that we can do um, to 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 access that and maybe see our dad, the best of our father in ourselves. Okay. Um, I mean, you want, yeah. want to have anything to add, or shall we move on to the next question? Yeah. I mean, I do think that you know you don't have to be a parent to be um, you know a consistent factor in somebody's life. So I like that what you're saying that you can be that in for other people as well. Yeah. Um, we have a question here on the screen. What cliches do you wish would go away in terms of the father-child portrayals in the movies? Emma, why don't we start with you? Um, I mean, it's hard. There, there's there, because there are so many cliches that between men and women in movies, but also you know, of course, that comes from a place in society too. Just that it's structurally uh, a patriarchal society. Um, I yeah, as a girl, you know, you grow up and you identify with not the damsels in distress, but like the action heroes or like, you know, so I don't know. I think it would be, I like that there's a lot of genre crossover now in movies and that there's a lot of flipping roles in movies. And I like to see more of that, you know, that it's just like a, f a father maybe in a, in a more domestic, more and more emotional parts, you know, that you see fathers in different ways, I guess. Yeah. To see that there's different ways to be a father. It's not the one. We, we, we saw a beautiful in the uh, pilot. I talked about this yeah. yesterday too. The independent pilot uh, uh, program. There was a really beautiful short grown about uh, this boy growing up thinking that he had to be a certain way to be like his dad. And then he has this, but his dad has passed away. And then he has this conversation with his sister that is like, you don't have to be like uh, really cool and you know, beating people up for me to protect me. You, if you're just there for me to listen to me, you can be the father, the man of the house. And I think that, that was a really beautiful message. Yeah. It's just uh, that it's more about showing up for each other and listening to each other than anything else. Troy, how about you? What's great about what's changing about perspectives on fatherhood is what if it's the wrong side of the father, like, like a father that's leading his family in the wrong direction? <laughs> what would that be like? And imagine why not showing your father, you're showing your father as a hero or someone who protects his family. Why don't we show the exact opposite of that? I'm trying to imagine it because I didn't have that. But I'm thinking about sign language. So what if everyone signs? What if there's no a spoken dialogue. What it, would it be like to be alive or to be a father? Really, I think for every individual, every individual's approach regarding fathers out there that I see in film or TV series, I get mixed feelings, right? Out, there's mixed feelings inside and outside of the family. Often the family doesn't know what the father's doing when he leaves the house. And some way he's doing good things, and some way he's doing bad things. And it, I think it's nice to see both sides of that story. So I think we can adjust that fatherhood perspective. And maybe the father should be more like the traditional mother and like be a house husband, like she mentioned, and 
and work in the home. I think it would be nice to see that, like Mr. Mom with Michael Keaton, for example. <laughs> it says something that the first place we all go is Mr. Mom from like the 1980s. Like one movie. Here, we've got um, one So one more. thank you, John and Troy, for that uh, clip. I'm, I'm, I was so moved. And Emma, I can't wait to see your film. Um, my name is Catherine, and I've really spent the last 25 years of my life between Ukraine and Canada and bringing those stories uh, from Ukraine. Um, we're looking at a generation that is separated from their father, whose fathers are on the battlefield, millions of Ukrainian refugees, where they're in Europe or, or America or Canada, and their fathers cannot leave Ukraine. So as I stand here, my twin sister is in, went to seven funeral, funerals today in Lviv. Um, so I guess my question really, are you seeing that Hollywood is interested in stories from Ukraine and really sort of in the same way that we're, we saw with CODA and a community that has not really been known or seen? Um, are you seeing any interest in, in, in those kinds of stories? Troy? Sto stories from Ukraine, yes. I suppose. You're the man with the Oscar. There's probably a lot of people pitching new stuff. <laughs> oh, I'm not pitching. I own a vodka brand. So I actually oh, yeah. have a, no, but, a whole different, uh, you know. What do you think? What well, are you hearing? I would love to see more stories about Ukraine. Uh, there was something that I learned was that the deaf community in the Ukraine really has difficulty communicating because of all the power outages and cell phone services and not being able to charge their smartphones. So deaf people in the Ukraine don't have access to information. And it's really heartbreaking. And so I, I would be really interested in Hollywood seeing that type of story and unveiling the deaf experience in the Ukraine. I think, yes, go for it. Pitch your stories. Make your movies. Make your series. My manager's here. Check it out. Check with him. <laughs> yeah, Mark's in the crowd. I'll connect him to people. Yeah. Look for Mark Finley. Hunt him down. <laughs> Emma, how about you? Are you, you know, as you're looking at the scripts that are out there and um, I'm hot off the presses? Yeah, I mean, I haven't w read much because I was working on the movie the last year, but... Uh, I obviously hear hear a lot about it, and I have a, a lot of friends also, yeah, with families over there. And it's yeah, I can, it's a real. I mean, I I would say that if you look at every major event like what's happening in Ukraine, if you go back to whether it's 9/11 or mm -hmm. um, a movie takes five to seven years to get made, so I think. It will take time, but I'm, I'm certain that we're going to have a wave of films that look back on this moment and that tell these stories and that it's going to take time, but I'm, I'm sure there's going to be, uh, there's going to be Oscar contenders about the stories coming out of Ukraine for sure. Um, thank you. We have, uh, our time is up. I want to thank our, my awesome guests and panelists today, Troy. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming back to Austin. Emma, thank you so much for participating in thank this. Thank you. Yes, really um, nice. You can see Coda on Apple TV+. Plus. It's available. It's awesome. And I hope you'll all get to see You Sing Loud, I Sing Louder, louder in theaters and streamers very soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you.